Amen. Imagine with me that you receive a special invitation from the King of England. A all expense paid trip to the United Kingdom where you will be able to see all the sights and dine with the king himself. And he has only one request. He says you're able to bring with you three of your closest friends, but you just need to send to the palace a copy of the passports of each of your guests so that they can coordinate travel information for the trip. And so you know exactly which three friends you want to invite, and you send a message to each of those three friends. The first friend completely ignores your message. Free trip to the UK. We're going to go to Buckingham Palace. We're going to stay with the king. We're going to dine at his table. I just need a copy of your passport. We'll plan the trip. Completely ignores Second friend, you've been having a little bit of a tense time in your relationship with this friend, and so you're hoping that maybe this invitation can kind of smooth things over. And despite this incredible invitation, your friend responds with a reply that's just dripping with anger and sarcasm. The third friend, you text, They reply and they say, absolutely, I'm in, I'm going to be there, no question. And then when you text them back and remind them about the necessary passport photo that you need, they don't say anything. Now, if you had something like that happen, would it be right to invite other friends in their place? Absolutely, right? Why? Because if, if you will not respond rightly to an invitation, it's perfectly appropriate for that invitation to go somewhere else. Now, most of us, I think, will never receive an invitation like that from the King of England. And yet, we do understand that principle in life, don't we? We understand the importance of responding rightly to an invitation. At least I think we do. Sometimes we struggle with RSVPs here at Pocosin Baptist Church. <laughs> but we should understand the importance of responding rightly to an invitation. And yet, for some reason, many people think differently about God. Many people think that we can ignore God's invitations, reject his invitations, or respond to them in the wrong way and still be welcomed into his presence. In a survey of American religious beliefs called the State of Theology, listen to this quote, 58% of professing evangelicals, that's our tribe, 58% agree that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Many people think that as long as you make some sort of effort, that's all that really matters. But the Bible clearly teaches 
that an invitation to God's presence is not the same thing as inclusion in God's presence. You can be invited to the presence of God and respond wrongly to that invitation and be cast out into eternal darkness. If you're not already there in your Bibles, I'm going to invite you once again to turn to Matthew chapter 22. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 14 this morning, and you're going to be most helped if you have a copy of God's Word that you can follow along with me. Uh, just a reminder, this is, it's Tuesday afternoon of the final week of Jesus's earthly ministry. A few days earlier, Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem riding a donkey with people praising his name. A few days after today's text, Jesus is going to hear a crowd of people cry out, crucify him. And he's going to be strapped to a cross and he's going to die just outside the city. That shift from Sunday to Friday seems absolutely improbable unless you understand what happened on Tuesday. Tuesday began, we saw last week, with Jesus entering the temple courts and the Pharisees putting his authority on trial. You remember, they're asking him, who gives you authority to do the things that you're doing? And Jesus responded with three parables. We looked at the first two last week. We'll look at the third this morning. And then after today's text, over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at the continued controversy and conflict with the Pharisees. And you'll notice at the end of all of that, they are determined to put him to death. In our text this morning, the big idea that I hope to communicate to you with God's help is that an invitation to heaven doesn't mean you're included in heaven. In this parable, we're going to encounter four truths about this invitation to heaven. And here's my prayer for every person in this room. Would you lean into God's word this morning? Would you not begin with a posture that says, oh, this isn't for me? Would you begin with a heart posture that says, God, speak to me and show me what I need to see from your word this morning? In fact, would you mind just taking a moment, bowing your heads, and let's pray that right now. Father, show us your glory from your word. Father, show us where we are. It could be that there are some in this room that are assuming that they're going to be welcomed in heaven simply because they received an invitation. Help us to examine ourselves so that we might know for sure that we have responded rightly to this invitation. And for those who are your people in this room, help us to be absolutely committed to inviting others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. Four truths from this parable. Truth number one is that God graciously invites us to celebrate his son. God graciously invites us to celebrate his son. That's the, the, the theme in verses 1 to 3. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. He's talking to the Pharisees. And he says, 
that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Uh, if you were here last week, I told you that a parable is simply a, it's a simple word picture illuminating a profound spiritual lesson. So the, the simple word picture that Jesus uses in our text this morning is a wedding feast. But the profound lesson is much bigger than a wedding feast. It's about heaven itself. The king in the parable represents God the Father. The son in the parable represents Jesus. And the wedding feast represents heaven. Now, I wonder if it's strange for you to think about heaven as a wedding feast. Perhaps that's because there's a big difference between weddings in Jesus' day and weddings today. Many of us don't like weddings today. It's okay to admit that. Maybe you don't want to. But we tend to it's just another thing that you have to do. And particularly the wedding feast, what is it about wedding feasts today that are so boring? I think perhaps part of the problem is that we have to wait for three hours munching on raw broccoli and carrots while you take your wedding pictures. That is not fun, by the way. Wedding feast today, you know, Couples will spend a few thousand dollars or so for this meal to entertain the guest at their wedding. And it's not that the food is bad. It's normally fine. But most of us are just not as interested in all the things that you're excited about, like the cutting of the cake and, and the stuffing of the cake in the person's face and the garter toss and the bouquet and all those things. It's just kind of like, mm, if we're honest, many of us just want to go home and watch the game before we fall asleep. In Jesus' day, weddings were different. In Jesus' day, a wedding was the, highlight, the highlight of the social calendar. In Jesus' day, a wedding, our weddings are typically a one-day affair, but in Jesus' day, the wedding was a week-long festival. It, it was a, a bunch of meals, a massive party, everybody from all around coming in. And this wedding in Jesus' parable is not just any wedding. What kind of a wedding is it? It's a royal wedding. Now, a royal wedding in Jesus' day, if you received an invitation to that, it would likely mean luxury accommodations in the palace. A week or two or three dining on the best food and drink that the world had to offer. The best entertainment. This would be the ultimate celebration. This is the celebration of the year. A royal wedding. Now, do you see maybe a little bit more now why Jesus compares heaven to a royal wedding feast? Now, I want you to be careful. I want you to be careful here because I don't want you to mishear me. Heaven is the ultimate celebration. It's the best party you've ever been to in your entire life. But the focus of that celebration is Jesus. Notice in the parable that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Heaven is an invitation to celebrate Jesus. 
In the book of Revelation, John, the apostle, has a vision of heaven as a wedding feast. And listen to what he says in Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Heaven is a celebration of Jesus. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that heaven means you're going to float on a cloud and wear a halo and play a harp for an eternal hymn sing. Some of you guys, that sounds pretty rough. I don't like harps, right? That's not the image of heaven. In fact, throughout the Bible, the Bible presents heaven as a city bustling with activity. It's the most multicultural city in human history. The Bible presents heaven as a new heavens and a new earth where we can enjoy all the grandeur and the beauty and the majesty of this physical world and yet without sin. Heaven is absolutely glorious, but at its core, all of that activity and all of that grandeur, all of it is a celebration of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 Verses 10 and 11 says that there is coming a day when at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you catch that in verse 11? When Jesus is praised, the Father is glorified. Just like this parable, the king throws this massive party to celebrate his son. And when his son is celebrated, the father is glorified. And God the father too is absolutely overjoyed and glorified when his people celebrate his son. So let me ask you this morning, would you be content in heaven if Jesus wasn't there? If you can have a world without suffering, a world without sin, a world without death, and a world with your dearest loved ones, but a world without Jesus, would you want to go there? The song that we sung a little bit earlier in the service, I want to know you, Jesus, my Lord. I want to know you and know you more. That is the Christian's heart. As the old hymn writer said, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Is that your heart, friend? Let me ask you, dear brother, sister, friend, do you love Jesus or only his gifts? Let me say to you, if you will not delight in Jesus as your treasure, you cannot receive Jesus as your savior. Let me say that again because it's really, really important. If you will not delight in Jesus as your treasure, you cannot receive Jesus as your Savior. Why? You know, 
as true as that statement is, I shudder to say it that way just a little bit because some of you might think, okay, fine, I'll, I'll treasure Jesus too. Sheesh, another thing that I have to do. Husbands, that would be like you saying to your wife, fine, I'll take you out on a date. Fine, I'll get you flowers. It's my duty. How many wives are going to be overjoyed by that sort of comment? Jesus does not want you to begrudgingly treasure him, to sing songs of praise to him with your teeth gritted. He wants your heart to say, I want to know you. He wants you to crave him. And the Christian, the one who's really been born again, his heart has been awakened to love and praise and treasure Jesus. Is that what's happened in your heart? Those who were invited to the royal wedding feast in Jesus' parable were receiving the honor of a lifetime. It would be like you receiving that all-expenses-paid trip to the United Kingdom, or better yet, an invitation to the coronation. Can you imagine that? If the royal family reached out to you and invited you to the coronation, how many of you would say, sorry, I've got to work that day? I might be sick. I mean, we're Americans, so we're not supposed to care about the coronation of the King of England. And yet, can you imagine the pageantry? Can you imagine the luxury? Can you imagine the prestige of receiving a personal invitation to celebrate the king? And God has given you something so much better. The king of kings and the Lord of lords has invited you to celebrate him. The only right response is gratitude and joy. As Revelation 19 verse 9 says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And yet, just like in Jesus' parable, some people refuse this invitation to celebrate Jesus. Some people refuse. Because an invitation to heaven doesn't mean you're included in heaven. So how will the king respond in Jesus' parable? How will God respond to those who reject his son? Let's consider a second truth from our parable this morning, and that is that God justly punishes those who reject him. Even though the invited guests reject the king, the king is not giving up. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's long-suffering, he's patient. And so he offers another invitation. Look, beginning in verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. You see the patience and the long-suffering and the, and the mercy of God? inviting people who reject him. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Well, that escalated quickly, didn't it? I mean, what starts as an invitation to a wedding feast ends with violence and murder and a city getting blown up. What's going on? Or 
remember, Jesus is the bridegroom. God the Father sent his beloved son into this world, and the world should have celebrated Jesus. And yet, the Gospel of John tells us in John chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. As we've studied Matthew's gospel over the last few years, how many times have we seen Jesus get rejected? It began in the earliest chapters when the wise men asked the religious leaders of the day, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? We've seen the star. We want to worship him. They say, oh, it's supposed to be in Bethlehem, but they don't go because they don't give a rip about worshiping the Messiah. Or Herod, wanting to kill a rival, goes and slaughters all the babies in Bethlehem, all the baby boys. From that moment at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew up to this point, we have seen over and over and over again that those who should have celebrated Jesus rejected him. Rejected him. We'll see in the next month or so that even one of his own disciples, one of the 12, will betray him. All of them will run from him. In this parable, Jesus gives us a glimpse into the different ways that we reject Jesus. Some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not gonna reject Jesus. I would never do anything like that. Sometimes it's a little bit more subtle. Sometimes some people reject Jesus by their indifference. Uh, look at verse five. It says that some paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. These are the people that are preoccupied with other stuff. You know, I've got a business to run. I've got work to do. I've got a scholarship I've got to earn. I've got books I've got to study. I've got a degree to get. I've got research I've got to do. I've got my hobbies. I've got to work on my tennis game. Or I've got to travel. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. They're, they're indifferent. They've received an invitation of a lifetime, and they've got other things to do. Like the rich young ruler who would rather keep his stuff than sell it all to follow Jesus. Or like the crowds, of Jesus, the crowds that surrounded Jesus when he was healing or feeding thousands, but really they weren't interested in following him. Let me ask you, dear brother, sister, friend, are you indifferent to Jesus? Are you half-hearted? Are you somewhat interested but not really interested enough to do anything radical? Do you feel good because at least you're not antagonistic? But notice in the parable, Jesus lumps the indifferent guests with a second group of people who reject Jesus, and some people reject Jesus by their antagonism. Look at verse 6. Some of the invited guests seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Certainly, in Jesus' mind, this would include the Pharisees who are even now plotting to kill Jesus. In his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, John MacArthur makes an excellent point when he writes that those who are actively hostile to the Gospel invariably are people involved in false religion. 
The history of persecution of God's people shows that the chief persecutor has been false religion. Whether it was the Pharisees in Jesus' day or the book of Acts or the Roman Catholic Church during the Reformation or the, the Muslim world today, the most antagonistic, angry, murderous, violent opposers of Christ and his people are those who are the most committed to false religion. And by the way, I think in our world today, in the United States of America, we can include in false religion the false religion of secularism and the sexual revolution that has its own dogmas and creeds and saints and holds ferociously to its beliefs and persecutes anyone who disagrees. What's undebatable in the parable that Jesus tells is what happens to both groups of people who reject Jesus. Whether you reject Jesus in indifference or in antagonism, if you reject Jesus, you will not make it to the wedding feast. If you will not respond rightly to his invitation, you will be punished. Notice verse seven, the king was angry And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Some scholars believe the reference to the burned city, it was um, fulfilled initially in AD 70 when the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the city that crucified Jesus. But this is ultimately fulfilled when Christ returns to execute his vengeance on all who will reject him. Dear friend, let me plead with you. We implore you this morning to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Whether you're eight or 80 years old, if you're in this room and you examine your life and you say, I haven't responded rightly to Jesus' invitation, it's not too late. One of the points that Jesus makes at the end of this parable is that God is sovereign over salvation. We sang about that earlier. Salvation belongs to our God. Could it be that the very reason why you're here this morning is so that you would hear God's word on this topic so that you might repent and believe in Jesus? An invitation to heaven does not mean you're included in heaven. Now, before we move on, There's a lesson that the Christians in this room need to learn from this parable. Who are the servants? You notice that throughout the parable, there's servants that are called to go out and invite people to the wedding feast. Who are the servants? Christian, that's you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been commissioned, not the pastors, not the deacons or the Sunday school teachers, Not the seminary trained, but the Christians, the followers of Jesus. We have been commissioned to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to communicate this good news. 
And one thing this parable teaches us that, is that we ought not to be surprised when rejection comes. One of the reasons why I think many of us are so timid to tell other people about Jesus is because we often get rejected for it, don't we? And yet rejection should be expected. Isn't it interesting in the song we sang earlier, we sang this line, many saints and martyrs conquered though they died. Usually you don't think the person dying is the one who conquers unless you're a follower of Jesus. If you are even to die for the sake of the gospel, you conquer, you win. Why? Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. The worst they can do to you is usher you into the presence of your greatest treasure. So dear brother, sister, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, have you let fear of man, have you allowed that to keep you from telling others the good news of Jesus? If so, can I just challenge you? The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. You can confess that sin right now. God, I'm sorry. I haven't been a faithful servant. Would you help me to do better with your help to tell my friends and my family and my neighbors the good news of Jesus? Now, there's a third truth we need to learn from this parable, and that is that God patiently pursues undeserving people. If the parable ends in verse 7, this is a really, really sad story, isn't it? The king invites people to celebrate his son. Nobody wants to come. It's an empty wedding feast. But just like our great God, the king in this parable is absolutely determined on having a wedding hall filled with people. Look at the text, beginning in verse 8. Then he, that's the king, said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Uh, there's a few questions I think we should ask about this scene in the story. One question is, what does it mean that the initial guests were not worthy? Think about this wedding invitation. Who could be worthy to receive an invitation to celebrate the, king, the wedding of the king's son? Nobody receives an invitation like that because they're worthy, and yet you can respond to that invitation in an unworthy manner, can't you? If you got invited to celebrate the coronation of the king of England, and you took that invitation and you threw it in the trash and put a TikTok video up on the internet about it, that would be an unworthy response, wouldn't it? Or if you beat up the mailman, that's an unworthy response. So too, Jesus' point is not that some of us are worthy of heaven and others aren't. His point is that it's possible to respond unworthily to the invitation. What's an unworthy response? To be antagonistic or indifferent to the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's an unworthy response. So if you're here in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, hear me clearly. You do not have to clean yourself up to follow Jesus. You come to Jesus and Jesus cleans you up. It's not about you being worthy enough. There's nothing you can do to be worthy of heaven. All you can do is trust in his grace. 
Another question we can ask from this scene in the parable is, what does it mean that some of the guests were bad and some were good? Uh, You see that uh, in verse 10. Those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good. What does Jesus mean by that? I think Jesus is just using terms that the Pharisees would understand. By a bad person, uh, the Pharisees, they would, they would be viewing a tax collector or a prostitute or a Gentile. A good person in their mind would be a morally upright Jewish person. And Jesus' point in this parable is that both morally, you know, good neighbor sort of people and horrible bad people are invited into heaven's banquet. Jesus makes it clear Jesus makes it clear that whether you're morally good or morally bad, nobody deserves heaven. Listen to Matthew 5.20. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So everybody who responds to the gospel rightly, from the law-abiding citizen to the most hardened criminal, is an undeserving recipient of mercy. Here's a, here's a little illustration of this for you. Grab one of your members' meeting packets when you leave this morning, if you're a member, and read through the testimonies this afternoon of the members that were receiving into Pocosin Baptist Church, Lord willing, this evening. You saw some of them earlier when they stood up. Some of them were saved at very young ages and lived relatively moral, clean, upright lives. Some of them were saved as adults after running from God and running into a lot of sin for a long time. And yet all of them are recipients of mercy and grace. None of them deserve salvation. None of you deserve salvation. Whether you're a relatively good person or you're a horrible person, you need grace. And Jesus' point is grace is available to both good and bad. No matter what life you've lived, you can find grace if you'll respond rightly to the invitation that Jesus gives. But before we move on, I want you to notice the heart of God in these verses. Do you notice how God wants heaven to be filled with worshipers. God's desire is for heaven to be filled with worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation. God is not stingy with his salvation. From the very beginning, when he first called Abraham, God said to Abram, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see God weaving this story where he is inviting to himself the most unlikely, the most undeserving of people. And then now in Christ, the nations can be glad. Why? Because we can respond to the good news of Jesus. God wants heaven filled with worshipers, with Haitians and Turks, with Koreans and the Japanese, with Brits and Americans, with people from Pocosin and Newport News, and yes, Hampton and Yorktown. He wants worshipers from every tribe and tongue, and he is drawing them to himself. 
And do you know what that means, Christian? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited to help spread the good news. Yes, many people will reject you when you talk to them about Jesus. But some will repent and believe. Some will respond. Let me ask you, Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, are you going out of your way to the highways and the byways to tell other people the good news about Jesus? Are you willing to go to the unlikely? Are you willing to go to the outcast, to the broken, to the sinful, to the poor, to the nations, even to those hard places that Bubba prayed about where you could be persecuted for the sake of the gospel? This text would compel us to go. And yet, the sad reality is that many American Christians are content to stay. A recent study of American Christians indicated that while 56% of us pray for opportunities to evangelize at least once a week, less than half of us actually try to talk to unbelievers about Jesus in any given six-month period. Even more troubling is another finding from the State of Theology Religious Survey. Only 32% of professing Christians strongly agree with this statement. 32%. It's very important for me to personally encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Two out of every three professing Christians in America would say, it doesn't really matter. I'm not worried about that. Is that what you would say, friend? If you're not where you want to be in this area, can I just say join the club? This is something that at the beginning of 2023, God put on my heart for Pocosin Baptist Church is that we would grow in our evangelism. It's been something I've been praying for all year and like God often does, God has forced me to grow in my evangelism. It's not enough for me to stand before you and say, we need to tell people about Jesus if I'm not telling people about Jesus. If I'm not faithful to evangelize those that God gives me an opportunity to talk to. One of my jobs as one of your pastors is not merely to say, this is what we must do, but teach you how to do it. So how do we do it? One of the things that we're going to do beginning next week is offer an evangelism class. It's going to begin next Sunday at 9.15 a.m., and yes, there's a shameless commercial in the middle of the sermon. <laughs> if you don't have a Sunday school class, I would strongly encourage you to join us. Here's what we're going to do in this class. We're going to discuss what it means to evangelize, why we should evangelize, some obstacles to evangelism, and a whole lot more. During the final six weeks of this class, I'm gonna take you through a course called Christianity Explained. Um, some of you were here when Cody was baptized back in July, and that was something that we did together before he came to faith in Jesus. Uh, it's been something that has been helpful to me to explain. It's a way to explain the gospel. It's not the only way, but it's a way. 
And one thing we'll do in this class is I'll just walk you through that. And you can see a way to talk to people about the gospel and tell people about Jesus. Listen to me. Lord willing, we'll meet back here uh, 9.15 next Sunday. But honestly, I'm praying that we can't fit in there. There's a little room back there. We can fit about 15, 20 people, depending on how hot we want to be when we're back there. I'm praying we can't fit in there. Can I tell you why I'm praying that? It's not because I want us to have a big class. It's because I want our church to be passionate about the lost. If you say, I'm not passionate about the lost, the first step to growing in your passion for the lost is admitting that, isn't it? And admitting that's a problem. So what would happen in Pocosin Baptist Church? What would happen in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our communities if God's people got serious about God's mission to take the good news of God's beloved son to those in the highways and the byways that he is drawing to himself? What might God do through this little church? What new men and women and boys and girls might be ushered into the kingdom? that we would be able to be a part of the front lines, get a front row seat to seeing God do something like this. Commercial over. Fourth truth we want to learn from this parable before we wrap up this morning is that God rightly demands that we come prepared. Most of us, if we were telling this story, we would have ended the parable in verse 10. It's a happy ending, right? First group rejects the invitation, second group, unlikely people from the highways and the byways, they come, the wedding hall is filled with guests, celebrating the sun, happy ending, story over. Jesus is much more concerned with you being rightly prepared for heaven than telling a happy story. And so, in the final few verses of the parable today, Jesus gives us a warning. One man who showed up for the wedding but wasn't prepared. Look with me beginning in verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Once again, that escalated quickly, didn't it? Why is this such a big deal? So one guy shows up to the party without his wedding garment on and he gets kicked out and tied up and thrown into outer darkness? I mean, talk about Bridezilla, right? I mean, that's, what's going on? Remember, the king has graciously invited all sorts of people from all sorts of places to the wedding. And yet, there's only one man who's here without a wedding garment. This suggests... And several Bible scholars, I think, rightly recognize that the king doesn't merely require a wedding garment. He provided a wedding garment. 
If he's going to invite people, spur of the moment, to a wedding from all sorts of places, he offers them a wedding garment. Here, put this on and come into the wedding. When you think of it like that, all of a sudden, this man, you see him in a totally different light, don't you? This is not a poor man who was unable to come prepared. This is a proud man who was unwilling to receive the preparations that were given him. He wanted to receive good things from the king without showing honor to the king. And as a result, this man too is cast out of the wedding. In this sad conclusion to Jesus' parable, we have a sober warning that there is yet one more way to reject Jesus. Dear brother, sister, friend, you can reject Jesus by your indifference, by your antagonism, and by failing to respond rightly to the invitation, coming but in the wrong way. I think one of the most terrifying things that I can imagine would be someone in this room thinking that you've responded in the right way only to find out on the last day that you didn't come with a wedding garment. I think the fact that you're listening to my voice means you're not antagonistic to Jesus. Otherwise, you'd be screaming and disrupting the service. And you're probably not indifferent either, or else you probably wouldn't be here. And yet it's possible that some of us have responded to Jesus just like this final guest at the wedding did. So here's the most important question that we can ask and answer about this parable. How do you make sure you come prepared? How do I make sure? I think the key is understanding what Jesus means when he talks about the wedding garment in verse 11. Earlier, I read from Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, heaven is described as a wedding feast. And interestingly, in that text, it also talks about having a wedding garment. So let's look at it again. Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So what's the wedding garment that God's people must wear? What's the text say? It says it's the righteous deeds of the saints. Righteous deeds is another way to say good works. And a saint is not a super spiritual Christian. It's every Christian. So Revelation 19, your wedding garment is the good works of the Christian. You hear that? And you might think, is this teaching salvation by works? But look carefully at Revelation 19. Notice it says that it was granted her to wear this garment. The word granted there literally means gift. It's a gift that they received. It's the exact same word that is used in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, 
That word gift there, that's the same root word translated granted in Revelation 19. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's what this is teaching. You receive your wedding garment by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And once you've received that, then you do good works to obey Jesus. This doctrine receiving a wedding garment is sometimes called by theologians the doctrine of imputation. There's a little image we're going to put up on the screen for you to kind of get a picture of what this looks like. In the doctrine of imputation on the cross, an exchange happened. Jesus lived a sinless life, completely without sin. And on the cross, all of your sin was credited, imputed to him. On the cross, Jesus is suffering the penalty for your sin. But that's not all that happens. When you put your faith in Jesus, his righteousness that he earned by his faithful life, that is credited to you. And that's why the song that we sing says this, dressed in his righteousness alone, I am faultless to stand before the throne. So let me ask you, dear brother, sister, friend, whose righteousness are you trusting in to get to heaven? If your confidence is in you and your works and your clothes and what you can do by your own efforts, then you will find yourself on the last day just like that man cast out of the wedding feast. But if you receive as a gift the righteousness of Christ and you trust in him and in him alone, then you will on that day be counted worthy. And the the Father will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. What will be said of you on that day? Brother, sister, have you come to Jesus rightly? Are you trusting in his good work on the cross or in your own good works? Are you dressed in his righteousness alone or your own? Are you hoping to receive good things from Jesus without submitting to Jesus? Has the gift righteousness of Christ compelled you to pursue practical righteousness in your daily life? Has God so transformed you that you can't help but go so that others too might know this good news. That's how we respond rightly to this invitation, by trusting in the righteousness of Christ alone. Would you pray with me?